Hi, welcome back to another podcast for U.S. History Repeated. This is Jimmy LaSalle. Today's podcast covers the life and presidency of Ulysses S. Grant. Ulysses S. Grant spent his life serving his country. He led the Union Army to victory in the American Civil War in 1865. He was the 18th president of the United States from 1869 to 1877 and created the Justice Department and worked with radical Republicans during Reconstruction to protect African Americans. Even in his retirement, he continued serving. Today's podcast was brought to you in part by the team at Keen Insights Internet Services. That's K-E-E-N-I-N-S-I-T-E-S. They spell it that way on purpose. They're punny like that. If you know any business owners looking to compete online with advertising or need a new website, contact our friends at keeninsights.com and be sure to mention U.S. History Repeated. Now, as always, we have our resident history expert, Jean Anzanakis. Jeannie, take it away. All right. So the presidency of Ulysses S. Grant. The election of 1868 was important for a number of reasons. It was the first presidential election after the Civil War, and it was the first presidential election after black males were given the right to vote. In addition, states like Mississippi, Texas, and Virginia had not met all of the requirements to be readmitted into the union, so they did not participate in the election. The incumbent president, Andrew Johnson, was fresh off of his impeachment trial, and he was not nominated by either party. The Republicans put up General Ulysses S. Grant. He had no political experience. But remember, voters love a war hero, and there was no one more well-known throughout the country at this time than General Grant. The Democrats, after a significant number of ballots, nominated the former governor of New York, a man by the name of Horatio Seymour. He had supported the Union during the Civil War, but he was a strong critic of President Lincoln's and of radical Reconstruction policies. His supporters referred to him as the white man's candidate. In fact, a campaign slogan from the election was, this is a white man's country. Let white men rule. His campaign supported racism, and the Democratic platform was to stop Reconstruction policies and to allow states the right to decide who should be eligible to vote in each state. Meanwhile, freedmen in the South faced increasing amounts of violence. By the late 1860s, the Ku Klux Klan membership had spread throughout the South, and white Southerners knew that most freedmen, if not all, would be inclined to vote Republican. Grant's campaign slogan was Let Us Have Peace and In Union is Peace. He was nominated along with Schuyler Koufax, who was the Speaker of the House. The Republican Party platform of 1868 was to continue on with Reconstruction policies, to promote suffrage for all black men, which of course would become the 15th Amendment, and to decrease taxes along with the national debt. There were, you know, good amounts of mudslinging from both sides. And the press at the time was certainly pro-Grant. Democrats tried to paint Grant as a drunk and a butcher, but their candidate just simply was no match for Grant's national celebrity. 
While the popular vote was somewhat close, Grant won the majority in the Electoral College. Ulysses S. Grant's real name was Hiram Ulysses Grant. He was born in Ohio on April 27, 1822. He was the son of a tanner or a leather maker. His father taught him the trade, but he hated it. And he swore that when he was older, he would do something else to support himself and to support his family. The accidental name change came when he was you know, nominated by an Ohio congressman to attend West Point Military College. And he wrote his name as Ulysses S. Grant. Grant attempted to have the error fixed, but it stuck. Grant would often joke that the S stood for nothing. He did not have a dream of a military career. You know, this was not his life's goal. But he attended the school at his father's insistence. He graduated in the middle of his class, you know, a rather mediocre showing. And he would go on to serve in the Mexican-American War under famed generals Winifield Scott and future U.S. President Zachary Taylor. He met his future wife, Julia Dent, before the war, and they were married in 1848. While Grant's family were abolitionists, the family of Julia Dent lived on a plantation and owned slaves. Grant's father-in-law sent some of his slaves to work for them. Ulysses S. Grant, even as a Union general in the Civil War, had slaves cooking, cleaning, taking care of his children. The young couple quickly settled into their married life, and they often moved around, as many military families do even today. Grant resigned from the Army in 1854. There is some debate over the exact reason for this resignation, some point to the distance between himself and his wife and you know their children, others to the reports of drinking and disagreements with his commanding officer. Grant attempted a number of different jobs trying to support his family, and he failed at all of them. He used the enslaved labor of his in-laws to help build his home, a home called Hardscrabble. He freed a slave that had been given to him in 1859, but when Grant went to fight in the Civil War, as I mentioned earlier, Julia Grant brought slaves with her. Her favorite slave, uh, a person by the name of Jules, ran away after the issuing of the Emancipation Proclamation. The enslaved people at her father's plantation would not be freed until after the Civil War ended and slavery was abolished. And so that is why Grant is known as the last United States president to own a slave. The outbreak of the Civil War provided him with the opportunity to support both his family and his country. He was put in charge of the 21st Illinois Volunteers, which had been labeled as being unmanageable. Grant trained them, and he prepared them for battle. He was made a brigadier general. He was promoted to major general after his victory at Fort Donelson. You know, Lincoln's first choice to head the Union Army was General Robert E. Lee, who famously turned him down and sided with the Confederacy once Virginia seceded. 
Lincoln would go through a number of generals throughout the duration of the war, Winifield Scott, George McClellan. It really was not until General Ulysses S. Grant that Lincoln finally had a general who was willing to go and fight. No trepidation, just go into battle and fight. No waiting for more reinforcements, just go and pursue the rebels. Grant quickly rose up the ranks, and in 1864, he was put in charge of the Union forces. He worked to help create and plan the strategy to bring the war to an end, and his defeat of General Lee in early April of 1865, which led to Lee's surrender at Appomattox Courthouse in Virginia on April 9, 1865. Grant's terms of surrender helped to set the stage for future surrenders of other Confederate generals in the last weeks of the war. The goal would be peace, not to punish. The surrender terms were very generous. The men would be pardoned, given Union rations. They were allowed to keep their horses, which could be used for the harvest, and of course their sidearms. A vicious, bloody war ended by really a gracious meeting of two men who, you know, just a few days earlier had led armies against each other. General Grant and his wife, Julia, were actually supposed to be with President Lincoln at Ford's Theater the night he was shot by John Wilkes Booth. In fact, killing General Grant was a part of Wilkes' larger plan. And, you know, we have more on this on our podcasts on Lincoln's life and presidency and on the Civil War. So if you have more interest on that part of General Grant's life, definitely listen to those podcasts if you have not already. Now, during the presidency of Andrew Johnson, General Grant helped to oversee military reconstruction in the South. It was his job to appoint the military generals to each of the five districts. While the men disagreed on policy, for sure, Grant was really essential to keeping the peace as, you know, southern states were readmitted to the Union. Grant briefly served as Johnson's secretary of war when he fired Edwin Stanton. Grant was forced to give up the position as a result of the terms of the Tenure of Office Act. When Grant was elected the 18th president of the United States in the election of 1869, he took over the presidency that had been severely weakened by various laws passed by the legislative branch. President Andrew Johnson refused to stay for the ceremony. In his first inaugural address on March 4th, 1869, Grant stated the following. Now, this is a direct quote from his inaugural address. The country, having just emerged from a great rebellion, many questions will come before it for settlement in the next four years, which preceding administrations had never had to deal with. In meeting these, it is desirable that they should be approached calmly without prejudice, hate, or sectional pride, remembering that the greatest good to the greatest number is the object to be obtained. In the speech, he also supported the ratification of the 15th Amendment and the paying off of Civil War debts. The wording of the 15th Amendment is really important to note. It is also important to mention that many abolitionists were also feminists and vice versa. 
Many women pushed to add the word gender into the amendment. It was, of course, not added. The 15th Amendment states that the right to vote cannot be denied or abridged on the basis of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. It did not guarantee the right to vote to men of color. With the ratification of the 15th Amendment, many Southern states passed laws to prevent black men from registering to vote in the late 1800s. And these practices would stay in place until the 1960s. Poll taxes, which were cumulative. So if you could not afford to pay the tax to vote last year, this year you now owe double. Literacy tests. Imagine being given an excerpt from the Constitution and being asked to both read it and explain it before you were able to vote. The grandfather clause, which stated that if your grandfather wasn't eligible to vote in the election of 1860, you were not eligible to vote. Grant's cabinet was filled with people he trusted and whom he had worked with in the past. His cabinet saw you know, quite a bit of turnover in its positions. Just to give you an idea, you know, during his two terms, he had two secretaries of state, four secretaries of the treasury and war, and five attorney generals. He also had two vice presidents, which we will go into a little bit later on in the podcast. Some of the things that occurred during his presidency, um, you know, were the Indian Appropriation Act of 1871. This made it easier for the federal government to take Native American lands once belonging to tribes or nations. This act made Native Americans individuals or wards of the federal government as opposed to members of federally recognized tribes. The post-Civil War era prompted the necessity of the creation of the Department of Justice, Grant tasked the Department of Justice with ensuring the protection of black Americans and going after those who sought to oppose the protections of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. The newly created Department of Justice prosecuted Klansmen and issued thousands of indictments. The Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871 helped to protect the rights granted by the 14th Amendment to protect the rights of voters. Failure to provide equal protection under the law would be punished. The law helped to, you know, decrease the power of the KKK and their attempt to prevent black Americans from exercising their new rights. In North Carolina, for example, Federal troops had to be sent and the writ of habeas corpus was suspended there. This allowed for the arrests of suspected Klansmen. While this law and their actions taken by the Grant administration, you know, helped somewhat, the KKK would survive and they would reemerge in the 1920s as really a powerful force of violence and hate in the United States. As more and more former Confederate states re-entered the Union, it became increasingly more important to protect newly freed blacks. When the institution of slavery was ended by the Civil War and the passage of the 13th Amendment, it was all but replaced, really but in name, by things like sharecropping and tenant farming. 
The average farm size in the South decreased as the number of farms increased. Many plantations were subdivided into smaller plots for both blacks and poor whites. Sharecropping was a new labor system that ensured a constant supply of both submissive and cheap labor. A family was hired to work the land. They would be given land, a cabin to live in, supplies that were needed in order to be able to farm. The landlord would then take the crop, assess its value, and deduct the cost of the supplies, living quarters, etc., Whatever was left over, if anything, would be given back to the family. A second system known as the crop lien system, you know, worked a little bit differently. A farmer would pledge their crop to a merchant in exchange for credit and for supplies. Now, you have no way of knowing how your crop will turn out. What if there is a drought, a tornado, a hailstorm that destroys your crop? you know, the head of the household, the farmer gets sick. You know, this led to debt for many. Segregation became the norm in the public school systems of the South. The practice of segregation then spread to other public facilities. The Amnesty Act of 1872 removed the public office disqualifications for many former Confederates that had been put in place by Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. It allowed many former Confederates the opportunity to once again be elected and serve in state and federal government positions. The Civil Rights Act of 1875 outlawed racial discrimination in certain areas. Black Americans were essentially forced to use the court system to protect their rights, which was very costly. The Civil Rights Act of 1875 was declared unconstitutional in 1883 when the Supreme Court declared that you can't prevent private citizens from practicing discrimination. Another major event that occurred during Grant's presidency was the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. It was one of the greatest disasters in U.S. history up until that time. Chicago's nickname of the Windy City, which is well-earned, coupled with drought conditions for six weeks and a crowded city built primarily of wood, was certainly a recipe for disaster. The exact cause of the fire is unknown. Some claimed that it started from a cow who knocked over a lantern. I mean, it's pretty specific, right? 300 people were killed and thousands were left homeless after the two-day-long fire just completely ravaged the city. The entire city had to be rebuilt, and it was in about two years' time. President Grant sent federal troops to Chicago. They had to stay there for almost a year. In the election of 1872, Democrats nominated Horace Greeley, He also had some support from the more moderate Republicans who didn't agree with the work that the Grant administration had done on behalf of African Americans. 
They instead wanted someone who would place the power of reconstruction into local state authorities, which really meant a return to white Southern dominance of politics in the region. Horace Greeley was a newspaper publisher from New York. Democrats liked their chances of winning, thinking that, you know, the Republican Party was divided. Greeley ran on a platform that supported civil service reform and an end to Reconstruction. It's a good thing that Greeley lost because he died shortly after the popular vote. In the end, Grant was just still too popular to be defeated. Grant knew that he lacked the knowledge needed for certain aspects of being president. He trusted his advisors, and he often made decisions based on their counsel. As an administrator, Grant didn't put in a terribly long day at the office. If you read biographies of past presidents, you can get an idea of you know, the type of executive that they were. Some were more hands-on than others. For Grant, he was typically done for the day around 3 p.m. He would then go and ride horses and return and have dinner with his family. It's no surprise that things were happening without his knowledge. He wasn't there to oversee. He trusted maybe too much that people would do what they were supposed to do. Grant was posed to start his second term as president with a new vice president. Thinking Grant would only serve one term, his first vice president, Schuyler Colfax, stated that he wouldn't seek renomination for the vice presidency. And when Grant had announced he was running, it was too late for Colfax. Other people had thrown their hat into the ring, and Senator Henry Wilson would be Grant's vice president for his second term. Now, this is not the end of the story for Vice President Colfax. He was implicated in one of the biggest scandals of Grant's presidency, and it also wouldn't be the only major scandal for President Grant. The Credit Mobilier scandal was basically a number of stockholders in the Union Pacific Railroad Company. They created a company called Credit Mobilier. This was a dummy construction company. It existed only on paper. And this company would submit bids to build parts of the Transcontinental Railroad. Now, we have an upcoming episode on the Transcontinental Railroad coming up, and we will discuss the huge land grants and the federal bonds that were given for every mile of track that was laid. At times, Credit Mobilier was the only company to submit a bid. They inflated prices. They hired out other companies to build the track, which sometimes they did and sometimes they didn't. But it didn't matter because there was no federal oversight. And they had bribed members of Congress to help pass legislation that would benefit their actions. While these things occurred before Grant was president, Senior members of Grant's administration were implicated, and Grant's own vice president, well, former vice president, Schuyler Colfax, and Grant's current incoming vice president, Senator Henry Wilson, had been given stocks in that company. A second major scandal for President Grant was the Whiskey Ring Scandal of 1875. 
it was exposed by an investigation by Grant's newly appointed Secretary of the Treasury. He uncovered that the federal government had been cheated out of millions of dollars in taxes that had been placed on whiskey. IRS agents had teamed up with distillers in order to cheat the federal government out of some of the tax revenue. The scandal implicated many federal employees, including President Grant's own personal secretary and his former aide in the Civil War, a man by the name of General Orville Babcock. Babcock was brought up on charges, but he convinced Grant that he was innocent, and Grant testified on his behalf at his trial, where he was acquitted. The investigation uncovered that the government had been cheated out of $4 million, and some of that money had been used to help fund Grant's re-election. Again, Grant claimed to have no knowledge of this. In another scandal known as the Indian Ring, articles of impeachment were brought up against General Grant's Secretary of War. He resigned over accusations of accepting bribes from traitors at Indian posts, and he had already resigned before being acquitted in his Senate trial. Another major event that occurred during his presidency was the Panic of 1873. It was an economic crisis that signaled the end of the post-Civil War era boom. Jay Cook and Company, which was the main financial backer of the federal government, declared bankruptcy. Many other financial institutions soon followed. Many railroad companies declared bankruptcy, as did many businesses. Now, for those who still had jobs, their wages were cut. And this led to a number of strikes. There were a number of causes to this economic crisis. Commercial overexpansion, speculation due to railroads and increased unemployment. Northern Republicans became more focused on fixing the crippled economy than they were in protecting Southerners from racism. It's important to understand why certain things went unchallenged in the South not making excuses for it or condoning it in any way, but I hope that you can see the connections. So when this economic crisis is happening, they're not so concerned with all of these policies that are happening in the South. And it also gave, you know, Southern politicians kind of carte blanche to kind of do what they wanted to do. Foreign policy-wise, during Grant's administration, there were two failed attempts to annex overseas territories, Cuba and Santo Domingo, which is present-day Dominican Republic. There was a desire for a military hub in the Caribbean and to also gain additional territory. Now, while these attempts failed, the United States will eventually become an imperial power after the Spanish-American War in 1898. One of the biggest triumphs of Grant's presidency was the Treaty of Washington. The United States, Great Britain, and Canada agreed to terms that dealt with the border between the U.S. and Canada. Fishing rights, and most importantly to the United States, the issue that some English companies had provided the Confederacy with British-made warships used during the Civil War. 
This had significantly strained relations between the U.S. and Britain, and it was the cause of significant monetary damages to the federal government. And Britain agreed to pay the United States over $15 million in damages. While many in Grant's inner circle wanted him to run for a third term, including his wife, Grant decided against it. The election of 1876, which we will talk more about in a later podcast, it was greatly disputed and ultimately decided by the legislative branch in what would become known as the Compromise of 1877. In Grant's farewell message to Congress in 1877, he ended his speech with the following statement. And again, this is a direct quote from that speech. History shows that no administration from the time of Washington to the present has been free from these mistakes. But I leave comparisons to history, claiming only that I have acted in every instance from a conscientious desire to do what was right, constitutional within the law, and for the very best interests of the whole people. Failures have been errors of judgment, not of intent. After his second term as president ended, Grant went on a two-year-long world tour. He began his visit in England, where he met with Queen Victoria. He traveled throughout Europe, meeting with political and religious leaders like Otto von Bismarck, of Germany, who helped to unify Germany. And one of my favorite quotes of his, laws are like sausages. It's better not see them being made. I mean, that doesn't tell you anything about politics. I don't know what else will. And Pope Leo XIII, they went to the Holy Land. They traveled through the Suez Canal and went to India. He traveled through much of the Asian world. Um, He went to Burma, which of course is present day Myanmar. Siam, which is now known as Thailand, where he met with King Chula Longhorn, who in his younger years was famously tutored by Englishwoman Anna Leon Owens, which was what the film The King and I is based on. Um, He helped to keep his country, Siam, from being colonized during the age of imperialism, which if you know your history, European countries were busy making a vast empire for themselves throughout the Asian, African and uh, worlds and, you know, the Middle East at this time. So Grant is traveling to many of those different places. Grant traveled on to China and Japan, meeting with the Meiji Emperor and was able to help negotiate peace between China and Japan. And he helped the two nations avoid war for the time being. You have to understand that when Grant returned to the United States, he received a hero's welcome. He was a rock star, so much so that he made a run for the Republican nomination to run for a third and unprecedented term as president in 1880. But he narrowly lost to James Garfield, who, of course, went on to win the election. Any money the Grant family had left over after that two-year world tour was put into an investment firm that his son was going to help run. The partner, Ferdinand Ward's investments failed and the company went bankrupt and the Grants were left pretty much penniless. Grant even had to give many um, items of his Civil War memorabilia in order to pay back the loan he took to try to save the company from going under. In 1884, Ulysses S. Grant was diagnosed with inoperable throat cancer. 
He had made some money writing articles on the Civil War for a magazine called Century Magazine, and he had been offered a deal to write his memoirs in exchange for 10% of the profits. His friend, a man by the name of Samuel Clemens, convinced him to have his new publishing house print the book, and he offered Grant 75% of the profits. That friend of Grant's is more commonly known by his pen name, Mark Twain. He agreed to write his memoirs in the hopes of being able to basically provide for his family. And he is now fighting his final battle, a battle he knew he would ultimately lose. But he was determined to finish his memoirs before time ran out. Over the course of his illness, General Grant received many letters from former soldiers from the Union and Confederacy alike. He was beloved. He would dedicate his book to them, writing, and this is a quote, these volumes are dedicated to the American soldiers and sailors. He finished his memoirs just a few days before his death. The book was two volumes, and the majority of them focused on his military career and the Civil War. Grant was heavily criticized for his tactics in the war, and he hoped to provide some perspective into his methods. The book is really very well done, and if you love Civil War history, it is certainly a must-read. The book was a success, and the Grant family received hundreds of thousands of dollars in profits after Grant's death. Former President and U.S. Military General Ulysses S. Grant died on July 23, 1885 at his home in upstate New York. If you are looking for information on Grant's funeral and his tomb, grantstomb.org is a wonderful resource, and if you live near New York, it is definitely worth the trip. Grant's tomb is the largest mausoleum in North America. Grant's tomb is located in New York City in Riverside Park, overlooking the Hudson River. As a soldier, he lived in many different places. He settled in New York in the last years of his life. The building was designed to look like the mausoleum at Halicarnassus for the BC-era ruler Mausolus. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. The above-ground sarcophagi were designed to model Napoleon's tomb in France, another famous general. Inscribed on the outside of the building is Let Us Have Peace, and it is flanked with statues symbolizing both war and peace. While it is important to note that today, Grant's legacy is debated at the time of his death, he was a giant. He was put on a pedestal, the same way that George Washington was during his lifetime. Bells tolled throughout the country in cities in both the northern and southern United States. His funeral was attended by both Union and Confederate troops. Many former Civil War generals from both sides of the war served as pallbearers. It is believed a million people gathered in the streets to pay their respects to the fallen general and president. Thank you, Jean Ann. Ulysses S. Grant was a beloved hero in his time and even afterward. I know this podcast has inspired me to learn more and to certainly visit Grant's tomb as it's right here in New York City. Come and listen to see what happens next. Thanks for listening to U.S. History Repeated. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Parlor. Visit our website, ushistoryrepeated.com, and subscribe to our podcast. There's always more to learn. Talk to you soon.